Friends and travelers, however you've arrived, I bid you welcome. Here at Let's Be Frank, we're about lives, and above all, living well. I don't suspect a podcast hosted by Benjamin Franklin could be about anything else. In my lifetime, I pursued the practice of moral improvement like a science, recording my successes, and yes, oftentimes reveling in my failings. It's my genuine hope, with our weekly almanac, to feed to a curious world delicious morsels of history in quick and concise installments, perfect for a nice sit in your favorite chair, a morning walk to work. At the end of each installment, I like to wrap it all up in a neat little parcel with a lesson you can apply to your own life, inspired by the events, personalities, and ideas covered in each episode. So sit back, relax, and together, let's make history. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Before we begin, my beloved Junto, I wanted to bid a special thank you to our Patreon members from the Penny Philosopher tier and above, who came to this month's Coffee House Q&A with our show's co-creator, Master Brian Austin. We had a wonderfully historic time, sharing the research being done for upcoming installments, plans for future seasons, and truly just enjoying one another's company. A reminder to all of our listeners that for $10 a month, you can also unlock this special perk, along with the countless other extra tidbits that comes from our growing historic community, including the weekly podcast, Behind the Benjamin, that shows the other side of Let's Be Frank, and features, again, the wonderful, the lumpy, co-creator of Let's Be Frank, Master Brian Austin. Love the wit and wisdom of Dr. Benjamin Franklin in the 21st century? Become a member of the Junto by joining our Patreon today. You can find the link in this episode's show notes. We'd love for you to join our family. Speaking of family, how are your Halloween plans shaping up, my dear Junto? We announced last week the first annual Dress Like a Benjamin costume contest. For all those ghosts and ghouls who observe tomorrow's festivities and those who don't. My friends, we want to see you, your children, your dogs, your cats, your goldfish's best impression of your favorite founding father. You can upload your ingenious ornamental impersonations to social media and enter to win by tagging us at BeFranklinLive on Instagram or TikTok and using the hashtag DressLikeBenjamin. You can also send it to our email, inquiries at bfranklinlive.com, or you can even send it by the postal service. Although I confess it may not get to me in time. We've got four more days before we select our winner and a $100 cash prize that we're excited to give away. So, my friends, spread it around, get it trending, and make sure to encourage the world to like and follow that we can enlist new members of our junto. Now that we've got the minutes and orders of the day taken care of, let's get to today's episode. My friends, let's make some magic. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Dr. Ben Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode 
is about witches, it's about superstition, and it's about the seductive nature of fear. Thrice the brinded cat hath mewed, thrice and once the hedge pin whined, harpier cries, tis time, tis time, round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw, toad that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one sweltered venom sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, and now about the cauldron sing like elves and fairies in a ring. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. This little excerpt, taken from the bard's immortal Scottish play, has existed side by side in the wide cultural canon of an often vilified and simultaneously venerated figure of folklore and superstition, the witch, and the practice of witchcraft, a crime that for centuries warranted punishments of the highest order, mandated by scripture, never suffer a witch to live, mandated by society and their distrust of that which moved against the norm, but above all, mandated by a fear and fascination with the unexplainable. Shakespeare capitalized on this long-standing fascination with his weird sisters. His Scottish play was written during the reign of His Majesty King James I of England, formerly James VI of Scotland. Oh, there were gobs of things that we have to thank King Jimmy for, not because of his labors for them one way or another, but because so many people tried to curry his favor and approval by putting his name on it. Bibles, cities, etc., etc., etc. It really is the way of the old world. Man sweats and the king gets the credit. Shakespeare himself was no stranger to this. He knew his audience. He knew the audience he was writing for. A play about a Scottish king undone by witches, performed for a Scottish king who, coincidentally, was almost undone by witches. Now, my friends, around this time, 434 years ago, the seas were uncharacteristically rough. Ships would depart and inevitably would need turn around, it being far too dangerous to life, limb, and property to risk a journey across the tempestuous waters. One such voyage in September of 1589 bore the new Queen of Scotland, Anne of Denmark, who had married her new husband by proxy, meaning she had only seen his portrait and swiped right to marriage contract a precursor to both the tender and remote work movements of your time, if I understand them correctly, which I presume I do. But Anne would not make the easy voyage from Denmark to Scotland, no, at least not this time. The vicious storms racked her ship, and they were forced to settle near Norway for repairs. Another attempt was made, and the vessel sprung a leak and they once again found themselves seeking shelter on the shores of Norway. It was decided they would return to Denmark to ride out the winter until the more seasonal spring tides could bear the new queen to her newfound shores. James, upon hearing of the delay of his new bride, was impatient, was annoyed, and so impatient was he to meet his new bride that he decided he would join her in Denmark. And so, through the winter of that year, they traveled between Denmark and Norway, and then that spring would set sail for Scotland, 
with vicious storms once more dogging them the entire way. It certainly seemed, my beloved Junto, that some otherworldly power moved against them, and since it certainly could not be the Almighty, no, the Almighty who ordained their union, then what otherworldly forces were plotting against them? The answer would ignite a fervor and lead to an era that would see countless tried and executed out of fear and superstition, a war upon witchcraft. All through that season there were trials in Denmark, witches put to death for conjuring those storms. One such disturbed King James so much, for it is said that she whispered in his ear sentiments that he and his new bride had uttered on their wedding night when only they two were in the room. How did this strange woman know the musings of two newfound lovers? It would disturb King James so much that he would carry this newfound fear and hatred of witches back to England, where he would codify into law measures and means to not only discover witches, but punish them to the fullest extent to the law. A war upon witchcraft. King James would reignite a fear and hatred for practitioners of the dark arts. He would author books upon witchcraft in the form of his demonology and would establish statutes in English common law enumerating witchcraft as a felony offense. Now, what does all of that have to do with today's installment? I'm getting there, dear listener. You'll have to pardon me. I'm an old man. I ramble. I enjoy it. Don't worry. I suspect every modern American can speak at least in some detail to the witch trials of Salem, Massachusetts. Many of these same policies and practices established in the time of King James to discover witches and ensure judgment passed upon them would be applied to the instances in the American colonies where the question of witchcraft was raised. Salem, Massachusetts, Grace Sherwood, the Pongo witch of Princess Anne County, and, of course, the lesser-known Witches of Mount Holly, New Jersey. In 1730, just three years after the last woman in England was executed for witchcraft, there was a coven uncovered in a small hamlet in New Jersey. The following is an account written in the Pennsylvania Gazette in 1730. These are those words. Burlington, October 12th. Saturday last at Mount Holly, about eight miles from this place, near three hundred people were gathered together to see an experiment or two tried on some persons accused of witchcraft. It seems the accused had been charged with making their neighbor's sheep dance in an uncommon manner, and with causing hogs to speak and sing psalms, etc., to the great terror and amazement of the king's good and peaceable subjects in this province, and the accusers, being very positive that if the accused were weighed in scales against a Bible, the Bible would prove too heavy for them, or that, if they were bound and put into the river, they would swim. The said accused, desirous to make their innocence appear, voluntarily offered to undergo the said trials, if two of the most violent of their accusers would be tried with them. Accordingly, the time and place was agreed on and advertised about the country. The accusers were one man and one woman, and the accused the same, the parties being met 
and the people got together, a grand consultation was held before they proceeded to trial, in which it was agreed to use the scales first, and a committee of men were appointed to search the men, and a committee of women to search the women, to see if they had anything of weight about them, particularly pins. After the scrutiny was over, a huge great Bible belonging to the justice of the place was provided, and a lane through the populace was made from the justice's house to the scales, which were fixed on a gallows erected for that purpose opposite to the house, that the justice's wife and the rest of the ladies might see the trial without coming against the mobs. And after the manner of Moorfields, a large ring was also made. Then came out of the house a grave tall man carrying the holy writ before the supposed wizard, etc., as solemnly as the sword-bearer of London before the Lord Mayor. The wizard was first put in the scale, and over him was read a chapter out of the book of Moses, and then the Bible was put in the other scale, which, being kept down, was immediately let go. But to the great surprise of the spectators, flesh and bones came down plump and outweighed that great good book by abundance. After the same manner, the others were served, and their lumps of mortality severally were too heavy for Moses and all the prophets and apostles. This being over, the accusers and the rest of the mob, not satisfied with this experiment, would have the trial by water. Accordingly, a most solemn procession was made to the mill-pond, where both accused and accusers, being stripped, saving only to the women their shifts, were bound hand and foot, and severally placed in the water lengthways from the side of a barge or flat, having for security only a rope about the middle of each, which was held by some in the flat. The accusing man, being thin and spare, with some difficulty began to sink at last, but the rest, every one of them, swam very light upon the water. A sailor in the flat jumped out upon the back of the man accused, thinking to drive him down to the bottom, but the person bound without any help came up some time before the other. The woman accuser, being told that she did not sink, would be ducked a second time, when she swam again as light as before, upon which she declared that she believed the accused had bewitched her to make her so light, and that she would be ducked again a hundred times. But she would duck the devil out of her. The accused man, being surprised at his own swimming, was not so confident of his innocence as before, but said, If I am a witch, it is more than I know. The more thinking part of the spectators were of the opinion that any person so bound and placed in the water, unless they were mere skin and bones, would swim till their breath was gone, and their lungs filled with water. But it being the general belief of the populace that the women's shifts and the garters with which they were bound helped to support them, it is said they are to be tried again in the next warm weather, naked. The fate of the Mount Holly witches and their accusers would remain unknown and highly speculative. Of course, it would later be revealed. The entirety of the affair would be a work of fiction, propagated for what else? to sell newspapers and give people the thrill of a good scare. Would you know, my dear friends, that this bewitching tale was even rumored to have been created by a very different kind of wizard, one I suspect you're all too familiar with, a wizard well known for commanding the lightning. 
are you understanding what I'm saying? I'm 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 talking about myself. It's it's me. I they think I wrote it. Man tends to move through seasons of what they fear, but consistently when the fear of the unknown or uncontrollable grows too great, fingers are raised and witchcraft is declaimed. Happy we should be, my friends, in the 21st century to derive a little fun from our fear this Halloween. Which leads us, my friends, to your lesson for the day. Fear, like all things in moderation, can be a very good thing. It can excite us, thrill us, remove us from our comforts just enough to change the way we think. It's when that fear grows too large that we begin to look for something or someone to blame. We look to make someone suffer for the sufferings in life that we cannot control. The lesson for today, my beloved Junto, is this Halloween, fear responsibly. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resource materials and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal section at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Facebook at Let's Be Frank and Instagram at Be Franklin Live. And finally, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well, and always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends. 